0: Welcome again to the Death Labs podcast, where we talk all things security and threat research. Joined today by Casey Ellis of Bug Crowd, uh, the, the founder and CTO. Uh, he's also the founder of the Disclose I.O. Project. So today we're talking about all things vulnerability research. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, let's start with talking about Disclose, the Disclose I.O. Project. Right, What is that and, and what problem are you trying to solve?
1: Definitely. So, Disclosure really came out of trying to, um, you know, as actually as a part of Bug Crowd, trying to get people across the internet to adopt, you know, vulnerability disclosure and or, you know, public bug bounty programs back in, you know, 2014, 2015. So, right right in the kind of early days where it started to catch a tailwind, um, the thing that we noticed was that um, lawyers don't really understand this stuff if they've interacted with it for the first time. And a nervous lawyer tends to be a, a verbose lawyer. You end up with a you know a brief that's like war and peace and yeah, right. 11 pages long. And I mean, they're doing their jobs. That, that's fine. I don't fault them for that. But it was a problem that needed to be solved because the other side of that is that you've got security researchers, you know, oftentimes who are ESL. Um, so English is a second language and, and more often than not, like not a lawyer, um, you know, trying to pass through this stuff to figure out what they can do Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of their vulnerability research that's, like, legal and safe and covered by, you know, the total law policies. So, basically, what we started off doing was condensing the language, like, crowdsor- actually open sourcing um, how to condense a-, a good security policy into something that was, like, easy to read, um, but as legally complete and bilaterally safe as we could make it. Mm-hmm. And Disclosure kind of spawned out of that um, <clears throat> into a whole bunch of different things. Like, we've got a policymaker – that lets people, you know, write their own, you know, basically plug-in inputs, create their own policy, create a security.txt output, a DNS security txt output, which is actually a standard that we proposed out of the project as well. It's like an incubator for like free stuff that helps people do VDP well is is kind of probably the easiest way to think about it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are the
0: authors, the the security.txt standard.
1: Uh, no so we did not not security.txt we did uh, DNS security txt so the idea was ah, okay it basically, yeah it basically extended we actually worked on an equivalent to security txt before Ed and those guys went off and did the hard work was getting it um, picked up by IETF and and, and all of that um so that was awesome because that was the part that actually needed to happen that they took care of but <clears throat> looking at some um, security txt one of the challenges around it is that pretty much actually twofold again. In a large production environment, getting something deployed into the root of a web server at scale and then keeping it maintained is a nightmare. It's something that a startup can do easily. But if you're a large organization, it's actually a pretty horrible way to implement this type of mile marker. And on the flip side, um, any web developer could theoretically do it. uh, And they might not necessarily have the legal blessing of the organization to say, hey, internet, here's our policy and here's where to send vulnerabilities. So you know, to to me, we were thinking about this. Um, John Carroll and I were jamming one night. Um, I think during COVID, when I was down here in Oz, as I am right now, um, and we thought, well, oh, hang on, DNS is probably the most authoritative kind of midpoint. You know, both from a technical but also from an organizational standpoint. How can we put records there instead? So we proposed this standard. It's been it's actually <clears throat> been interesting because it's a challenging thing to do. People don't like the idea of putting you know crap in your DNS zone. I think anytime you propose something like that, you get an allergic reaction there as well. Yeah, it's yeah. A Sort of balance of the problems that we're trying to solve. That's been a really interesting one to work on. No, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that, yeah, DNS is, is
0: usually highly controlled because the cost of error is quite high.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's governed, like a, like the governance of DNS tends to reflect that as well, uh, You know, as opposed to, as I was saying before, the governance of a web server. Sometimes it's really tightly locked down, but if you're out in the fringes of, you know, UAT or whatever else, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, there's a spectrum of things that are possible there that just don't seem appropriate for, um, you know, telling a researcher that you're not going to go to jail if you tell us if there's a problem. <laughs> do you know what I mean? it's Kind of important to get that one right. So so that was um that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Probably another piece as well is, is um just some collection, like literally collections of different um things that have happened historically from from a volume disclosure standpoint. So there's threats.disclose.io, which is basically a collection of um you know when organizations, agencies, whoever have used, you know, DMCA, CFAA, like the Computer Misuse Act in the UK, the Crimes Act here in Australia, um, to chill good faith security research. So we're not talking about legitimate applications of those rules. We're talking about when people use it to basically say, hey, shut up. We're not like that. Um, So, you know, researchers can actually post that stuff up into that repo. It gets... um, yeah, there's a bunch of people, um, Jericho, who used to work on nutrition.org, uh, which you know, if you've been around long enough, you, you you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and if not, you probably don't. Um, but he he works on it in terms of um, you know integrity and all those different things, and I think that kind of accountability side of it um, has been really powerful as well.
0: So yeah, I mean, you mentioned kind of the the, the history of uh, CFA and DMCA and its use and overuse you know, historically, and kind of the evolution of what that means in vulnerability research. I think, you know, before this of just uh, of just chatting before this podcast, right, it's kind of my own origin story of, you know, I was a college student. Well, actually, my origin story is is farther than that at those DMCA, by viol- well, what would have been DMCA violations when I was 10 of selling bootleg software, but I was 10, there I had no idea was doing (laughs) right, you know, in in college of just engaging in shenanigans (laughs) uh, of a university who really wanted to put me in prison, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just happened to be in a jurisdiction or uh, within the territorial, uh, you know, apparatus or jurisdiction of a field office who just didn't feel like using, you know, the CFAA or Computer Fraud and Abuse Act as uh, as a way to just throw Mischief makers, right? You know, into into yeah. federal prison, which yeah not right? You know, just just dumb luck, right? Of um, some other 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 offices, you know, have historically been a little little heavy handed, right? That's really plays into the evolution of vulnerability research and vulnerability disclosure, and you know, now to the world of bug bounties, responsible yeah. disclosure, coordinated disclosure. So, yeah, tell us a little, you know, your, your kind of your perspective of that
1: history of the past. Thirty years, forty. I think Have it been more
0: than twenty-five. It's close to it's, thirty years now.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a long it's a long time. Um, and actually, as well, I think you know what we've seen part of what got me pulled um, and and like attracted to, but also I think pulled into some of the um, the you know collaborative threat intelligence and threat research space is that there's similar gray areas from a legal standpoint. There's similar mm-hmm. dynamics from a collaborative contribution like collaborative crowdsourcing standpoint. So it's like, I I know this from vulnerability intelligence. This is kind of cool. It's just being applied in in, you know, similar or adjacent or kind of other areas of security. Um yeah, I mean, look, it, it's been, it's been a ride. Because I think, you know, what you're saying about the idea of actually getting prosecuted, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in particular, the, there's really not actually that many the cases that you hear about that are good faith to actually make it to the dock historically. Um, they make a lot of noise and they create a chilling effect, but they're actually quite rare. Um, the the more <clears throat> the more kind of um, obvious, um, you know, observable, I guess, impact of of some of the the vagaries of how CFAA is written is that um, you know, like companies can write a cease and desist and invoke of CFAA in that. Like a you know, pretty famous example of that was when DJI sent a nasty gram to Kevin Finister um, after he, after he, you know tore apart some of their drone stuff um, and said, Oh, you know, this is violation. And it actually kind of, they they sort of got it wrong and Kevin went ahead anyway, but most researchers don't have, you know, he's got a combination of an understanding of the law. That's historically really strong. It's not his first rodeo in terms of pushing back on that kind of, Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, wet blanket letter. Um, Plus he's just as a human, you know, a pretty, like he's a, he's a good guy. He'll, he'll push through and get a thing done. Most researchers aren't necessarily like that. So you end up with people just not doing – they're just scared. It chills oh, them yeah. into doing yeah. security research and not necessarily actually doing anything that's positive in terms of public safety because they're afraid of it being misinterpreted, which is a stupid problem for us to have as an internet. Like, that That was the part, again, with, with disclosure, you know, I kind of described the technical piece before. But just <clears throat> at a system level, it's like this is a dumb problem for us to have. Like, this is the – you know, the internet's immune system trying to do its thing and we've got the equivalent of an autoimmune deficiency. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of, of basically pushing on, you know, the department of justice, like firstly driving adoption. And obviously this ties into bug crowd because bug crowd helps people run these programs. So there's a commercial benefit downstream for bug crowd as an organization, if we create a change in the operating environment. But to me, they're kind of almost two separate things in a way because the, operating environment change has to happen regardless of what bug crowd does or doesn't do to capitalize. So that's kind of why we forked it out. Right. Um, And it's, it's been pretty extraordinary because I think with the adoption of, of, you know, bug bounty, I think in 2014, 2015, um, that was what got the attention of the market, you know, as a, as a like kind of sexy way of rendering security research and getting people to actually like lean in and, and look at it that weren't, you know, prior to that. So that was useful. Um, But what happened off the back of that was a whole bunch of um, really kind of, you know, insertions of of vulnerability disclosure as opposed to bug bounty into like regulation, you know, NIST 853R5 um, got it written in. There's, you know, BOD2001 out of CISA that popped out in in 2020 and different versions of this all all around the world. Um, They're kind of really what they're doing is reflecting the fact that like if you're on the internet as a company and you've had humans contribute in any way to the systems that people are using, there's probably going to be a mistake or two in there because humans aren't perfect. So it's not like this, this mm-hmm. like, shameful, whatever. It's, it's more a reflection of just like the realities of computer science and how it interacts with human creativity. And the fact that sometimes that goes wrong, right. That's it. Yeah. So, okay. Assuming that's true. Um, we need all the help that we can get to find problems and, and probably just this, this discovery of those problems is going to be a creative process as well. Um, mm-hmm. cause it's definitely creative when the adversary is doing it. So this whole idea of letting the immune system do its thing just sort of makes sense. Um, and that kind of narrative, like I call that my kind of because math set up because it's just like, yeah, the math just makes sense, right? This is a thing that should happen because physics kind of dictates that it's eventually going to be that way. Um, it's been right. a long road. Like the whole thing was responsible versus coordinated versus vulnerability, the language around it, seeing changes in the law and all those different things. It's a lot of people been working really hard on this for the past 30 years. But we've seen a lot of progress in the last three, or so, three or so, I'd say. Yeah,
0: no, I, I think so. And I think you, you kind of reference something that just, you know, is of, of my own personal history as I've, I've done vulnerability research from time to time, but never really jumped into that world. I yeah. will find vulnerabilities in like crimeware and like panels and all day. Don't no. care because it's it's single use right if i'm hacking a ransomware database that that can't be reused anywhere else prior to bug bounty programs and and a path to get it from point a to point b one the real money was intelligence agencies who would pay mm-hmm. for this and they're yep. still paying for this a yep. bug bounty program is not going to compete with an intelligence agency wanting to do the work of intelligence agencies and as a researcher i you know on one hand yeah Find terrorists, whatever protect us. On the other hand, I'm also not naive. You know, the same tools can be used by organizations like the NSO Group, and you yep. know, assassinating a journalist inside of an embassy. Mm-hmm. I do yep. not want to be part of that world, right? You know, so I'll, I'll help find ransomware operators and hack their stuff. But there wasn't ever really an outlet by the time I was making kind of mid-career choices. Yep. When I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing some research, maybe I'll I'll pop a panel you know but i'm not really looking at phone vulnerabilities anymore uh sure sure you know, and i suppose yeah. i decide to redo something else right Every, everybody sure. can invent themselves right. so way. let's
1: let's 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 go there for a second cuz like sure. my i mean australia um yeah australia is actually pretty well known for um so I, you know by, by the way as context i actually live in san francisco mm-hmm. Born and raised in Australia, um, you know, moved across there as we we started Bug Crowd back in 2013. We're actually back here right now for, you know, birthday season and family stuff and whatnot. Uh, and, and then heading back. So I just thought I'd call that because literally the first question I get asked in any conversation ever is like, so where do you live? Um, so I'm just preempting that. <laughs> but yeah, the the Australian um, offensive community. So if you talk about vulnerability procurement, you know, basically I look at it as, as you know, you, you buy a bug to kill it or you buy a bug to keep it alive. Um, and and those are the two reasons why that information changes hands. Um, yeah, I, I've deliberately tried to avoid like black hat and white hat and, you know, good and bad and all those different things. Cause I think um, particularly from an international relations standpoint, that's, that's far too fluid a construct to apply to this. It's, it's more, if you're thinking about the economics and, and movement of information, the idea of what's the purpose of that movement, I think is the easiest um, place to kind of, you know, start at. Um, but Australia's, um, offensive, uh, community is very strong. It's a, it's a community I've been a part of for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about it is that I took an understanding of the economics and, and the business model and some of the work that went into that side of it to so supply into, you know, five eyes and, and different things like that into bug crowd. Um, the funny part was that you know people didn't really start to understand or talk about that um until you know FBI versus Apple after the San Bernardino shooting, and then that whole thing coming full circle a couple of years later, and it you know the big reveal and all that kind of stuff. So now that's a really that's actually I think a far easier conversation to have, and it's less um loaded like back back in twenty you know thirteen through twenty sixteen, say. There's this idea that like, if you're doing that type of work, you're, you're, you know, morally, um, it's morally wrong, um, full stop because the internet should be hundred percent secure and there's no such thing as a, as a safety interest or a national interest or a public health interest. Um, and you know, my personal point of view is that being vulnerable is always bad, but exploits can be used for good. So it's really a question of equities and and, and how you kind of applying that whole thing. So it's, yeah, that's been a really interesting journey because I think um, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's we're still talking on the like the right side of the law, quote unquote. When you get off into um, doing crime, um, you know that's when what you were talking about before kicks in. Like Dan Kaminsky used to have this great quote: like not everyone wants to be a drug dealer, um, <clears throat> and it's true. It's like some some folk, you know, the reason that I don't get into that stuff, I'd, I'd probably make a fairly effective criminal. I just don't want to be one. So
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, cool you you, you kind of. <laughs> You know, you can eat well or sleep well, right? You know, and then, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly right. So I I, I plenty prefer to
0: of- sleep well, but in this industry, we make plenty of money, right? So
1: we're doing pretty good these days. So there's, there's less of a reason to, to break bad. Um, But yeah, I think explaining that, I mean, this is another metaphor I use a lot talking about because the assumption oftentimes that we bump into in a bug crowd context is that hackers and even just people in computer security in general um, are automatically Bad, because that's kind of just the narrative that we've had for the last three decades or so. Um, but the way I explain it is that you know, you, like lock locksmithing or lock picking, um, mm-hmm. that's that's like a morally neutral skill set. It, it, it's dual use, though, so you can be a burglar or a locksmith. Um, you know, lock picking is the the skill that you've got, and it really comes down to how you actually apply it and what kind of you know moral framework you put into that. And, yeah, you know, I think the general population is pretty comfortable with that distinction. They're just unfamiliar with it when it comes to computers because the internet's still, I think, fairly new <laughs> to most folks. Yeah. So, right. you know, that whole idea of just people getting their heads around it and then policy tends to follow that stuff. If if all of a sudden you've got legislators thinking about it in terms of, like, my voting population actually are starting to understand that this is a thing, they might not understand how it works, but they've realised it affects them, I need to actually jump in and be proactive around it. That's when you start to see things change.
0: Yeah, no, I think so. And and there's an expression I use when I've when I've taught when I've covered this in my classes that I teach in a university is like the the people who are really good in this industry, regardless of, I mean, pen testers, threat and tell, you know, whatever. Right. Have a non weaponized criminal mind. Yeah. It's it's
1: you can think like that without
0: being that. Right. Yeah.
1: percent. Yeah. That's also, I love that. Actually, I might co-op that, you know, the, the, if I get asked about, cause I, you know, people ask about the, um the founder story and like, Oh, how'd you get into this? All, all that kind of thing. And from an origin standpoint, one of the things that I'll, I'll say is that, um you know, I grew up really enjoying thinking like a criminal, but having no desire to be one. Yeah. Um, which is funny because I, like people in, in this space, they recognize that and they understand it immediately. Everyone outside of it, they're like, I don't really – I can't empathize with that, but it's making me laugh and I can kind of get what you, yeah. you mean. It's, it's it's the same reason people like crime shows on TV. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a fascination and even some – in some ways a respect. You know, to me, like <clears throat> criminals are entrepreneurs without rules, right? And there's a yeah. certain – there's a lot you can actually learn from that um, without adopting the morality or the ethics of it. And I think that last part is the part that people struggle with. Right. Um, but I still think it's true.
0: Yeah. I mean, human beings are are creatures of convention, right? We just follow convention by default. That's most people. If you say, How are you? You know, responding to that with, you know, my wife left me, you know, the kids won't talk to me, just like unloading how we really are, is just not what we do by convention. And most right. people follow it. And computers, when people everybody follows the convention, they work great. The problem is, is you know, software engineers who also follow conventions don't go their use cases of what happens when somebody throws in, you know, a single quote, semicolon
1: drop tables. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the way I think about that oftentimes is that, you know, the the role I actually like to me and, you know, the whole definite, like what is a hacker that's a whole debate that can go, it will go on forever. I think um, mm-hmm. But you know, one of the things that I think about probably the easiest way I can kind of conceptualize what I picture when I think of a hacker is someone who takes a system, looks at its assumptions and then tips it upside down to see what falls out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically, it's literally opposite thinking like let's invert everything that was assumed in the creation of the system and see what we can come up with. Um, and it applies to, you know, Obviously, that applies to vulnerability research. I think it applies in a lot of different areas, actually, including entrepreneurship. Finally, enough um, but that that idea of you know inverted thinking, of, you know, oppositional, like it's almost you know oppositional defiance as a service in a sense. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it manifests like that. Like it's it's fascinating like that. And it, it that's a, that's what I love about you know the stuff I get to do, the community, this entire space is just the the amount of creativity. That gets applied into that because we're ultimately ex- exploring pretty much an infinite white space that's around all these things that people have built to see what's possible and try to you know create better safety conditions really as a result of doing that which i think is pretty cool
0: yeah no i mean there's 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 a social good behind it you know when, when thinking about it because we, we you know the way technology exists it's almost we forgot all of our lessons about regulating capitalism from a century ago you know, people build these great products, yeet them out to the market, and say, it's up to you to protect yourself. Yeah. If we yeah. had a proper regulated system, our industry wouldn't exist because products would would be safe by default, right? Your car is safe unless you're drunk driving over curbs. You know, it yeah. won't fall off. It's not on you to figure out how to attach the wheels to the car. The system is safe by default, where in technology, here are the features here you go hire security professionals, and oh by the way, if you're a consumer, you can't hire nobody. you can you can download antivirus,
1: maybe, and good luck. And here yeah. we are. Yeah, no definitely. I mean, I think that condition that conditions a funny funny paradox, I think, because you know it's a part of what has made the internet such a you know beautiful trash fire um, in, in terms of in terms of how it's changed everything. you know it's, it's not <clears throat> bounded by theoretically it's not bad i mean it still is because people still own the pipes and all those different things but in terms of the pure concept and and i think a lot of how it's played out over the past you know four decades or so is is really this idea of you know free transfer of information and there isn't there's no accountability there's no liability there's no restriction um which allows it to go really fast and and kind of almost mimic how you know the collective kind of neural network of the planet works in a way um, which is wild, right? But you know, the problem is that's like dangerous too. Yeah, uh, to, to just completely let that off the leash. I think capitalism is is actually a, a pretty good parallel because you know humans, we like to think that we um, are going to you know do what's best one hundred percent of the time, but the reality is that's not true. Um, you know, outside of active malice. So you end up with all these kind of unintended consequences. This is one of my favorite things to say that, you know, folk that work at, work at BirdCloud and even entrepreneurs in, in cyber, it's like, listen, you got to remember that our entire industry is not meant to be here in the first place. No, no, like no one, I, I, no, exactly. one planned, no one planned for this to like have problems with it. So like the fact that, you know, things get weird for us sometimes and there's uncertainty, like we're, we are literally operating in white space um as as an industry, and just knowing that and accepting that, I think is actually quite useful when things get weird or, uh, or you know, as they often do.
0: yeah, I ask they just get weird in new and more exceptionally horrific ways, right you know, it's, it's, yeah. there, there's no meat space equivalent of ransomware. I mean the meatspace equivalent is just people running around, burning down hospitals, and facing no consequences. Yeah, we have a global economy, a global internet, uh, interconnected economy and society. And we have national law enforcement and, you know, we can't agree among nations how many countries are there are. Right. Because you have a handful of people. Some people think Taiwan's a country. Others don't. Some people think Israel's a country. Others don't. Right. You've got these disputed territories. Where are the lines in Ukraine? Right. You can't get consensus on facts you're not going to get consensus on international law enforcement. So ransomware is going to continue forever because this crime does pay.
1: Yeah. And because, and because the, like the internet moves way, way faster than any kind of reflection of consensus in policy, because it takes long enough to get the consensus to then actually codify it and roll it out. takes even longer. And in the meantime, like how many packets have crossed the wire? <laughs> like a lot. Yeah. So, you, you know, you end up in this position where I think there is the, like we've. I think we are actually. I think we're well past that break point at this point in in, in history. I think you know, that's going to become more obvious as we go along, and and what the you know what the um, failure mode of that and what the kind of the new state of it looks like um, that keeps me up at night sometimes because I, I can't see a future where we don't have the internet like fairly tightly carved off in in ways that reflects you know international relations. Um, agreements and alliances and all those different things and i think at that point in time the utility of the internet actually goes down by quite a bit um and and it becomes quite a you know different place but um that's kind of where we're at at the moment where all those different things are being tested for all the reasons that you just mentioned i do think bringing it back to the user um i actually do think that the free market i don't think policy is ever going to fully get ahead of this stuff without becoming like authoritarian and draconian which is not something that I necessarily want to advocate for <laughs> or want. Mm-hmm. Um, so in lieu of that, the idea of, of you know, free market and an incentive being the thing that um, tries to help people do better. Uh, I think that's, that is a useful lever that's available on the user side. You know, to me, it comes down to this idea of like how do you make secure easy and insecure obvious? Cause security is, is not something that people want to do. They like, they want to do the thing that they're already doing and security is a part of the construct of how they do that safely so they didn't do it to be secure they did it to do their thing so therefore reducing the cost of being secure i think is really important if you add too much friction
0: mm-hmm.
1: to anything from a control standpoint the users just going to find a way around it and there's mm-hmm. plenty of examples of that um right. but then insecure you got to make that obvious as well because i think when we're talking about this stuff <coughs> um you know as as experts um we dive into the detail, and you know the, the whole like locksmith burglar thing. Like you've got to literally dumb it down to that level if you want to have a have a decent sized impact on, on the um, on the user base because they they really don't understand what's going on. Like they understand that they should be concerned. I think we're at a point in history where <clears throat> you know the average person considers cyber to be an extension of their physical space. I think COVID really drove that point home for. Basically everyone. Right. So they're thinking about safety on the internet in the same way that they think about safety when they walk down a dark alley at night. Um, and, you know, the limbic systems activated and there's all those things going on in, in, in the experience of the users. they have just got no idea what to do about it. Well, and I think a lot of enterprises don't know what to do about it. You know, yeah. not holistically, there's
0: a couple things. Yeah. Use MFA. Right. And MFA for the general user can be kind of complicated. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I keep going, you know, one of the examples I'll go back, like by dollar amounts of lost the biggest genre of cyber crime or one of the biggest is romance scams. Yeah. There's not yeah. a technical solution to that. People yeah. have been, you know, people have been scamming romantic partners in meat space forever. It's it, it, nobody rolls up on their first date and say, here's all my red flags. Right. It you predates know, predates
1: the Internet by, by quite quite some time. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, humanity's been doing the same things forever. The Internet just enables greater scale, speed and over greater distance of the same stuff we've been doing since the early, more brutal documented parts of our, our human species
1: antics. Yep. but no I think I think that's right and this is this honestly that that is actually a fundamental I mean I don't want to pivot that back into a, a you know a bug crab pitch necessarily but talking about phone disclosure is a fundamental primitive to the future security of the internet like this is actually why this idea of of like you know someone leaving their front door unlocked someone else coming along and taking advantage of that. But then in the middle, you've had someone walk past and for whatever reason, um, observe the fact that that door's unlocked, right? Like that phenomena, we talk about stuff that's been going on for thousands of years, That has that's a thing that's been doing That's that same thing as well. So this idea of like... You know all of the like the infinite kind of failure states that become exploitable at the enterprise or the user level, um, and then human humans as you know ultimately the last mile of being able to identify those and stay ahead mm-hmm. of it as they adapt and change and accelerate over time. Like that to me is is really the only kind of one of the only sustainable solutions that we've got, regardless of what comes over the hill next. Like we weren't talking about AI and LLMs, you know, mm-hmm. nine months ago, right? Um, yeah, so, no, I kind of came out of nowhere, right? And, and, I yeah, that and, that- and that's, been, that's been true this entire time. So, like, yeah. you know, we started before there was a the concept of mobile appsec. And then all of a sudden, everyone was freaking out about that. Like, connected cars popped up, hit the scene in 2015. Like, IoT in 2017. Election security in 2018, 2019. Um, and that's just going to keep going. So, we're going to have a new trash fire to deal with, you know, in 12 months' time that we, we're not thinking of right now. And I don't expect that to ever stop, necessarily, because we're going to no. keep in...
0: No, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you mentioned A I M L. It's one of the few cases of here's a new genre of innovation where people are thinking pretty early on, right? You know, the regulators are all in already, <laughs> and you know, nobody knows how to regulate it because nobody knows what it is, right? Yeah, you know, the regulations apply to okay, how do you use it? Right? It's a tool, um, you know, facial recognition for recognizing your friends and family and Facebook. No, re- the risk of harm, no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Facial recognition for policing. All right. Human rights violations or facial recognition and recognizing protesters at protests to go throw them in secret prisons. You know, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, they're all examples that I've used. I, I'm getting my Ph.D. in, in, in machine learning like oh, okay. security, machine learning. But yeah, that, right. I mean, who's doing anything about security of machine learning?
1: Right. Yeah. So sure. we actually we actually got um we've been working with OpenAI for quite some time. We we landed them as a customer uh in I think it was February of this year when they, they had a VDP, but what they wanted to do was to basically get some more structure around the intake point and actually wanted to pivot it out to become a bug bounty program. Cause a part of their motivation as it is for bug crowd is to build out a community of folks that actually understand what adversarial ML and AI testing looks like and like the difference between, you know, SQL injection and prompt injection. But like there's right. all these different things where I think there's a lot of um, concepts of offense and, and you know, just classical computer science that actually translate quite nicely into AI and ML, but it's very different because it's all not gray. Either. Like the I biggest mean, thing I, is that it's not, it's deliberately not black and white, which breaks the brains of a lot of traditional kind of- It does. You know, CSQA folk. <laughs> But,
0: but at, at its core, it's the foundational fundamental computer science problem. Yeah. or Computer security problem, right? Is how do you safely process untrusted inputs? Exactly. And it's really difficult. And we haven't really, like SQL injections are still a thing. Buffer overflows are still yeah. a thing. Yeah. Greatly reduced, right? And now we're just adding more ways to give untrusted inputs to computers to process things. And to go back to a point you made, they, the, the, one of the the game changers that I don't think people are treating in an ethical standpoint is, in in a machine learning AI world, who's accountable? Nobody is. It's just the math, right? Math can't be held
1: accountable. You know, <laughs> well, uh, you I, know. I, got, I got I got asked that question on, on a so talking about connected cars before, like this is you know whatever it was twenty. This is the other part is that I don't think AI has been dumped on the internet. I think the awareness of AI has been dumped on the internet because in reality. Oh, yeah. In reality, like the flash crash of twenty ten was a was a adversarial machine learning attack against the high frequency trading system, right? That that was an active attack. You could argue that <clears throat> information warfare, um, and a lot of the stuff that's actually kind of changed, I think, the overall political environment since twenty sixteen or so is a product of abusive machine learning. So, like we've been dealing with this stuff for a lot longer. I think people have. Uh, GPT, oh, no, chat GPT captured awesome. the
0: imagination. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm. I, you know, I got asked a bunch of things. It's like, I remember Microsoft Tay from 2016. The thing that chat GPT did that, that Microsoft didn't was we're going to limit the That's input. Safety. to try to reduce the risk 100%. because Microsoft Tay became, you know, a neo-Nazi chauvinistic chat bot 24
1: hours. And of you know, it didn't. you're they welcome to internet. Come on, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. one of those ones where I think the um, yeah, there is definitely this blur, you know, safety as as a – because you talk about, like, there's these very clear and defined, you know, vulnerability categories, right? And then there's, I think, in a, a classical CS sense, a concept of, you know, a thing that, you know, it's a violation of confidentiality, integrity, availability, therefore it's a security vulnerability that's kind of easy to, you know, it's hard sometimes, but it's easier to put a box around then, you know, if you're talking about systems that are intentionally designed to be fuzzy in their output. And when it comes to accountability, this was the um where I was going before, like a connected vehicle um, you know, panel that I was on on the security side. And we're talking about computer vision and and training data sets for um, you know, level five autonomy and self-driving cars, all that mm. kind of stuff. <clears throat> and and basically someone invoked the trolley problem. Um, and it was so funny watching the car manufacturers just because they, they knew the line of questioning. It was the first time I'd heard of it, but obviously I'd heard it before. But this idea of like, if, if you talk about the trolley dilemma with an autonomous vehicle, um, at the end of the day, someone's going to sue because someone's been hurt. Um, right. Where's the chain of liability? Is it is it with the car assembler? Is it with the OEM? Is it with the people who built the model? Is it with the people who supplied the training data? Like where does the, if you've got, Decisions being made that are safety critical, that are fully powered by, by this trained ML or AI construct, like whose fault is the decision of that thing um, if, if it causes harm? And it, it was a really, like, to, to my knowledge, there's still not a great answer to that question. Yeah. Uh,
0: whenever there's more than one finger to point, Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, now, so like, that's litigation, that's, right. That's that's a that's a bit of a concerning kind of place for us mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. You know, yeah. No. Right. Us. You know, at least from litigation, the answer is, if I'm the victim, I sue everybody. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. so and then just insurance companies got to hopefully create an actuarial model. And well, the cybersecurity oh. insurance industry is buckling because the actuarial models are actually really hard because the, the scale of the problem is increasing at a rate where. The math doesn't work, and now insurance companies are finding ways to not write these policies anymore.
1: I actually think they've, I think they've figured out that – I think their actual able, uh, actuarial tables are um, decently populated now, and they've discovered that they've been, you know, insuring a bunch of three-pack-a-day smokers for lung cancer, and that's probably not a smart move. Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah they, that's that's another way of putting the same problem, yeah, it's, it's, it, and we don't have a good way of – or there's no good way to enforce hygiene. Right. Yeah. You know, but, but yeah. but yeah, you make a good point.
1: Yeah. So it's, 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 it's an interesting period. Like the, the liability piece, I think some of the stuff, you know, getting involved in the, uh, the national cyber, uh, cyber policy um, strategy, rather out of the white house um, with, with ONC there, D there, and forgive me, the coffee's kicking and It's like 7.00 AM here. So, it's all good um but the whole conversation around software liability and how do you create like how can this be something better than just caveat emptor as as, as, a, as a user you know there's almost from what i could tell there was almost unanimous consensus around the fact that that's a problem that needs to be solved somehow um it's the somehow that is the hard right part.
0: well <laughs> it's here's thing. a flip side How much of this is built on open, open source models or open source software developed by volunteers where there is no commercial entity or revenue? Yeah. Yeah. You can't bleed a turnip, right? You know, if I put a software module out there that turned out to be insecure and caused a billion dollars of damage, you could sue me. You know, I'm in a rental house. I have a 20-year-old pickup truck where the odometer is broken, Mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of assets to be had here, right? Um, you know, so you're not going to get a billion dollars from me. Yeah,
1: but oh, by the way, I power half the internet.
0: Well, <laughs> I, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> the funny story, that's how I started selling commercial threat feeds. It, it was like free for eight years. And then people started complaining that, hey, there's a false positive. We're going to come after you. And because all of these security companies were using it for free. And it turns out I was powering like half the security industry protecting things. And whenever, you know, and they were using it incorrectly against my guidance, but simply saying here, his fault. And I'm like, OK. It's time up. for everybody to pay up
1: the fuck you pay me. Yep, it's – um, uh,
0: yeah, yeah
1: I, it'll be – it's it's actually – it's been funny how this this um kind of conv- conversation has progressed because, like, when you think about, you know, all, you're talking about the incentive of usage, you're talking about the incentive of creativity, you're talking about, like, free market capitalism as a construct that we're all working with um that, you know, is available for that, and then you're talking about policy and re- regulation, the things that are kind of more stick than carrot – uh and and how those things work together i think my overall kind of picture of where we're up to is that it's just it's accelerating past its breakpoint. um mm-hmm. i actually think that you know as i said before i think we actually crossed that that bridge you know three or four years ago but now mm-hmm. it's becoming obvious so, yeah. so the question of like what do um <clears throat> i think that's a, a pretty fascinating and and actually important problem to um uh, to be thinking about, especially when you overlay all of the fluidity in the international relations environment right now um, and, and the fact that that's not likely to slow down either. Um, I think no. all of those things together, it's like, all right, like we've got to actually get – these are technical problems, but they the interface with humanity um, is, is um, so kind of pervasive that they can get viewed purely as social ones. Um, I, I think that's – I mean, to me, that's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, you know, I grew up on the tools and, and doing a lot of stuff. And I think, you know, the older I get, the better I was. Um, but I've kind of retained this idea of looking at these kind of system level, you know, technical, social interface issues as engineering problems to solve. Because ultimately, they kind of are. Do you know yeah. I mean?
0: No, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, that I covered a lot of territory and more than I think we set out to. <laughs> uh, you know, we're just kind of workshopping this beforehand. So, you know, I, I want to thank you for your time. Like I said, hopefully everybody, you know, got some value out of this. Right. Just like I said, a whole gamut of things of, uh, that we ran through. So you've been listening to the Death Labs podcast. We talk all things security research. Uh, we air every other Wednesday on all of your favorite podcast platforms. So whatever you happen to use like subscribe, do all the things and uh, you know come back in a couple more weeks for more uh more technical content if you'd like to be a guest or want topics feel free to reach out so uh thank you everybody and enjoy the rest of your day